Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Smoke Pit Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Goldstein. And with us today, we've got Air Force officer, CIA undercover operative, and all-around intellectual, Andrew Bustamante. Andy, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for coming by. Yeah, man. It's my pleasure to be here, Jamie. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'm I'm excited, man. I mean, you're an interesting and dynamic dude who's done some pretty cool stuff over the years. We all feel this way, of veterans and anybody who's made a living out of service. It's always humbling when people tell us we've done exciting things, because to us it's just like it's just life. Right. We're doing <laughs> doing our bit to survive and it's not very it's not gracious it's not beautiful it's not pristine but i do appreciate the fact that you appreciate it man it makes me feel good yeah yeah absolutely so tell me i mean you you know your, your career started in one way or another in the military you were uh you were a captain in the air force is that right yeah i left as a captain in the air force okay did you go in the, did you take the o route in or did you did you enlist and then go green to gold as we say in the army yeah, yeah, no, we, uh, so I was, I was a, a brown kid in a rural town in Pennsylvania. So, you know, the vast majority of, of high school graduates enlisted. That was just what you did. You either enlisted or you went into community college, right? That was okay. the two options. 1998, for, for those of uh, anyone listening who remembers those times. And I was kind of preparing myself to do one of those two options. And then I found out about the military academies, mm. the Air Force Academy, the Naval Academy, the the Army Academy at West Point, the Coast Guard Academy. And, you know, I found out about the academies, not for any kind of glorious reason. It's just because there was a beautiful girl on the cross-country team. <laughs> and she was like the prettiest girl in school. And she went to the Naval Academy. And that yeah. really made me think, like, if that's the kind of girl that goes to the Naval Academy, I need to learn about that. My God, this is, I, I feel like you're, you're reciting, like, the opening act to uh, Starship Troopers. <laughs> i love you're just chasing denise richards or, or it's a, it's who wouldn't a, who wouldn't right co-ed showers <laughs> i would kill a lot of alien ants to have one co-ed shower with Richards. <laughs> so i guess in your time of service you you didn't you didn't experience the co-ed showers is that right? no no i experienced a lot of other miserable showers like hot showers cold showers during basic training and yeah. field showers and tent showers Oh my uh, God. bucket showers right man it's it's not fun it's not that often that people think of like horrible experiences that they had bathing but <laughs> <laughs> the worst time i ever had trying to clean off it was i think you know we had just invaded like we just got done invading Sadr al Yusufia, part of the Triangle of Death. And we were set up at this TCP house. I hadn't bathed in like a month. And I had the worst heat rash on my back. You know, just wearing oh. body armor all day, that prickly heat. And I was out in the front of the house in just my my desert boots and nothing else, just naked from, from the boots up. My buddy pouring water on my back and scraping my back with my military ID, just trying to get out the sand, I mean, the, the, the salt out of my pores. And I'm just like hands on the wall, just screaming at the top of my lungs. <laughs> and he was having the time of his life. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen him laugh so hard. Yeah, it is funny. I was, I was actually having dinner last night with a former SEAL and uh, a guy named Kaj Larson, if you know the name. But we were here in Miami, out to dinner. It was the first time he and I met in person. We have, we have groups that run with each other. But okay. it was the first time that we sat together. And it, it, as always happens when veterans get together, or even former government employees, when we get together, we commiserate because there's, 
when you look up under the skirt of how the United States works, under the yeah. military skirt, under the government contracting skirt, under the, the procurement skirt, you realize how ugly it is under there. Yeah. And there's always stories that we can commiserate with each other about that nobody else understands. Right. If you've ever sat, if you've ever listened to two EMTs talk to each other, it's like it's like a foreign language. They see yeah. stuff that the rest they see stuff that even horror movies don't want to put on screen. Right. Like that's the world that your first responders and your military veterans live in. But it makes for great bourbon conversations when you're finally out. Yeah. Gives you something to talk about over drinks. So when you got it, uh, how long how long did you do? How long were you in for? Yeah. So I was active. Uh, I went into the Air Force Academy in 1998. Okay. And then I left, I left military service, uniform service in 2007. So okay. it was a grand total of, what is that, nine years for me, yeah. four of them at the academy, five of them active duty. And then uh, that was when I transitioned. I was trying to transition out of military uniform, away from shaving, away from one inch hair, right? <laughs> and I was trying to transition into the exact opposite. I was trying to go to the Peace Corps. I wanted to go, man, all I wanted was tent sex with hippie chicks saving <laughs> children in africa that was all i wanted and that's when i got a tap on the shoulder and i got picked up for cia instead wow and did they at least let you get away from that one inch because i mean it's a it's a it's a it's a travesty to force someone like you to cut those glorious locks man. well i didn't even know that this yeah I, this is me still they say men never mature past like 14 this is very much like my rebellious 14 year old self right really? like my mom looks at me and she's like when are you going to cut your hair and I'm like, just because you said that, mom, it won't be this year. Guess what? <laughs> I'm resetting the clock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, in a year and I'll extend it again. Yeah. Everybody out there who has that COVID beard and the COVID hair and the COVID, <laughs> COVID 20, we all know exactly what it's like to basically say, hmm, reset. I'm just yeah. going to keep it going. Let's see how long yeah. we can roll. <laughs> I'm actually, I was, I'm, I'm th considering growing mine out. I was going to, I wasn't even going to wear the hat, man. And then I saw you hop on with that and I'm like, I can't <laughs> like it's it's like zach de la Roca and colin kaepernick had a kid and he grew up to be more beautiful than either of them it's, it's oh well, that's can't compare yeah. that beauty's <laughs> in the eye of the beholder so i appreciate that I, I walk down the street and i get a lot of looks that don't look like people thinking i'm beautiful brother <laughs> it's jealousy man that's all it is bro i'll go with it i'll go with it but yeah the, with the agency it was yeah. you know you shape yourself to fit your cover so and in almost every cover you can imagine, you're trying to be forgettable. So my beard is too full for me to wear a beard in most places. Mm -hmm. And my hair is too, whatever this is, crazy for me to grow it out. I mean, surprisingly, I left military and I traded cropped hair and a shaved face for unkempt hair and a like permanent five o'clock shadow. That was basically yeah. my... My cover identity for the entire seven years that I was undercover were some variation of unkempt brown guy traveling the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I've I've heard this from a number of sources, and maybe you can tell me if I'm if I'm you know off base or if there's any truth to it. That some of the most successful undercover operatives tend to be like older, shorter Asian women, because they're just the most unassuming people on the planet. Is is there any truth to that? Yeah, so I can't say from my experience that I have met many hyper-successful, covert Asian women operatives. I have met a few. That, that could are, just mean they're really good at their job. Yeah, you know, you know what it is? What I have met a lot of yeah. are, uh, are like overweight, balding, 
white guys. And if you think about it, that basically describes a every CIA officer you've seen on yeah. like Fox News or CNN or anything else, right? <laughs> they, gain, they gain the belly, they lose the hair. And then for some reason, imagine that anywhere that person goes in the world, they're never seen as a threat. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. Figure. So, and, and if you think about it, if you're in Asia or Africa or Latin America, once they see you have white skin and a belly, they just assume you've got money. And that makes you everybody's friend. Wow. So you got the tap on the shoulder. Uh, you're trying to transition out. What's that like? I mean, what is it like to get tapped on the shoulder by the agency? What that it's exactly like? like you would think. It's, it's exciting. It's like you get this giant ego boost right away. And of course, you place yourself in the middle of every spy movie that you've ever thought of, right? You're like, yeah. I'm going to drive fast cars. I'm going to have custom-made suits. Women are going to like trample over each other trying to stand next to me in Monte Carlo. I can't <laughs> wait. That's what happens when you get the tap on the shoulder. And then you go to the first interview and you look around and you're like, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. This looks like a government building, much like in the military. This okay. looks like the discount beige paint on all the walls. Every interview is in some cubicle, you know, with some person who does not look at all like they belong in a James Bond movie. And then you start learning the reality of what clandestine operations really are, right? Because clandestine operations are secret operations that never get discovered. For a right. secret to never get discovered, it has to fly so far under the radar that you're basically stepping on it and not even realizing that it's happening. It's like, it's not sexy. It is extremely powerful, but it is not at all sexy. So speaking of the reality of it, can, let's, can we just spend a minute kind of talking about what exactly the agency does and doesn't do? Because people, myself included, you know, can tend to be a little confused about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny because I'm, and I will definitely answer the question. What I find is extremely funny is when no matter how many times I tell people what the agency does not do, there's always the person out there who thinks I'm lying, right? <laughs> so for example, the agency does not collect information on American citizens. It does not. It's not part of the charter. It's not part of the authorities that were granted by the executive. The CIA does not collect information on American citizens. And there are going to be people out there who hear that, and right away they're like, he's lying. That's not true. I know they collect. They collect. That's why I got to use Signal on my cell phone to protect, <laughs> to protect my conversation yeah, with right. Joe Bob. That's from... why I only text on WhatsApp. <laughs> like, <laughs> Let yeah, me give that will I'm going to give it to the Chinese instead of giving, giving my information <laughs> to the CIA. Yeah, so, so CIA is part of the intelligence community at large. And the intelligence community is a large organization. It's about 36-ish community partners. It, it fluctuates in size depending on whether or not the, uh, the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, decides to fund a new intelligence division or department somewhere. Okay. And the IC is, is groups that you would never expect. The IRS is part of the IC. They actually have a counterintelligence investigative unit in the IRS that nobody really thinks of. you got Homeland Security as part of that, the Army, the Marine Corps, the Navy. They all are part of the intelligence community. Of course, uh, CIA and NSA are in there. You've also got the National Geospatial Agency, NGA. You've got multiple different groups, that FBI, that all comprise the intelligence community. And the reason that there are so many is because the executive branch of government, the president, has essentially granted each different intelligence community partner unique authorities 
to execute intelligence operations. The reason that it's divested between so many is so that no single organization has all the power. I figured it had to either be either, you know, command and control or checks and balances, one of the two, if not both. And both, exactly right. So the CIA specifically was given the authority to collect secret intelligence about foreign threats against the United States. So outside of the United States, we're the, we are the only individuals granted leniency on committing espionage. If anybody else in the country tries to commit espionage, they go to jail. Right. We can commit espionage and we're safe. We're not only safe, we're legally covered and protected by the, by the federal government, right? So yeah. we're lying to the IRS. We're not actually who we say we are, right? The CIA is standing in and providing a cover identity, a whole cover persona. We are illegally essentially living in the United States and then illegally operating overseas. It's, there's nothing legal about it, but it's the authority. Yeah, the authorities that were granted to us by the president is what makes it legal. On the flip side, you know, we don't have arrest authorities. We can't do, we can't go up to like any civil dispute in the United States and have any kind of police or law enforcement authority at all. We don't have a badge. We don't carry an ID card. FBI gets to do that. So FBI can go up to any foreigner or any American citizen in the United States and have the ability to potentially put them under arrest or open an investigation. But they can't do that overseas. They don't have those authorities. So the reason that it's so important for intelligence community partners to work together is because when all the partners work together, we are a juggernaut of, of authorities, right? <laughs> it's powerful. The American government is a powerful, powerful thing. However, we're all still full of a bunch of like American egos. So people don't like to get along. People don't like to share information. People don't like to collaborate because if you collaborate, you run the risk of somebody else looking good. Yeah. And you don't get your promotion this year. Right. So it, it becomes messy. So the, the CIA, as it seems, spends a lot of time and money and effort influencing people. It, it's, is that is it safe to say that that's basically what the CIA does? I mean, not just I mean, obviously, it's collecting data, as you said, but the application of that dot data seems to be global influence. Is that is that accurate? So it's an oversimplification. It's not totally wrong, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a way of going far, far to one side to explain what we do, right? I would say the core mission of CIA is to collect intelligence. And the core mission is to collect intelligence that they can synthesize and turn into analytical recommendations for policymakers, right? That's the real product. If you look at CIA, funny thing, CIA is called the Central Intelligence Agency. It's also sometimes known as the company, right? Yeah. Well, every company produces a product. The product that CIA produces is analytical reports about secrets that are not publicly known. Okay. That is the product. So if you just think of the CIA as a company, it produces these analytical reports and it gives those analytical reports to Congress in exchange for Congress giving CIA money to continue collecting secrets overseas. Okay. So then Congress has the information they need to make the proper finance, military, and support decisions to the executive, who also who is also known as the primary customer, right? So it's not that far of a stretch when you look at CIA through a business lens. Sure. So looking through that same lens, because this is, this is really interesting. I mean, there are companies out there that don't solely produce products. There's companies out Correct. there that, that produce, they provide products and services. Right. And when you look at the, the CIA as, you know, the history of the CIA, clearly 
they provide services as well. And some of the services that they've provided in other countries, whether it's, you know, Cuba, Iran, Vietnam, yeah. have been services revolving around influence. Oh, yeah. And You're not wrong. It's, so influence is absolutely part of the charter. But when you say it's where our job is to influence people and influence global events, like that's a secondary benefit, okay. right? It's, it's kind of like how Amazon is not in the business of giving you free shipping. That's not what they do. Amazon is in the business of creating gigantic server farms that host information. And then because they have all this information, they are also just well-suited to gain additional market share by shipping you stuff for free, same day. Or not for free, but you know, for a ridiculous price. So CIA's job is to collect secrets and give those secrets to US policymakers. In the process of collecting those secrets, they also have incredible reach into foreign governments. Mm. So with that incredible reach into foreign governments, it makes sense to have the ability to also influence the policy decisions of those foreign governments. Okay. Because now you can influence their decisions according to the guidance you get from your customer, the executive, and the policymakers in the United States. Got so it. I think it's really, you're right on comparing it to a company because there's products and services. Sometimes it helps us to ship weapons. Sometimes we ship weapons like we did with Iran-Contra, and sometimes we ship weapons like we're doing with Ukraine, right? And sometimes we influence politics and it works out. The countless number of times that the CIA has influenced the presidential election abroad that I can't talk about. And sometimes we try to influence elections and it doesn't work out, like we saw in Cuba over and over and over again. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so, so here's, I kind of want to take that and run in a different direction now. If I remember correctly, some of the first boots on the ground in Afghanistan in 2002 were CIA contractors, and obviously they were collecting intelligence. By the end of this 20-year war, as I understand it, and again, I'm not the expert here, it was, it was as much influence as it was data collection. Now, for guys like me that were nowhere near as cool as you, just boots on the ground, a lot of us told that our mission over there in Iraq and Afghanistan was hearts and minds, you know, and I know that there's a lot of dudes out there, especially since the fall of Kabul, that look back on the last 20 years and just they hear the term hearts and minds and their blood boils. They see red. And I heard you say in a, in a podcast recently that you don't need hearts and minds to win a war. So, I mean, where's, where is the disconnect? Because, I mean, if we can do it, if we can win without that stuff, why was it crammed down our throat? Why did so many of us you know, give up so much to win hearts and minds. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because what we're running into or what you're describing here, Jamie, is a little bit of it's every combat or every conflict decision, whether it's conflict with guns and missiles or whether it's conflict on the Hill between opposing policy viewpoints, right? Whenever yeah. conflict happens, there has to be a matching narrative that goes along with the conflict mm -hmm. so that you can kind of drive your agenda politically and financially. Because remember, if you look at the United States not as uh, like the world peacekeeper or a global superpower, if you look at it as just a giant economic engine, yeah. Right? when you talk about a superpower, what you're really talking about is a super wealthy country that can dedicate that those resources to generating a modern military. That's what a superpower is. And that's why Russia lost the superpower race after World War II, 
they lost the super wealthy status. They were no longer able to maintain a modern military. That's why people say the current superpower competitors are the United States and China, both creating immense wealth and investing that wealth into a modern military. So when you look at it through that lens and you paste that over Afghanistan, what you saw happen there was 9-11 happened. People were furious. You were alive for 9-11. Sure. People were scared. People were angry. There were, you know, blood in the water in a lot of different ways. And we wanted some kind of response because that's what Americans do, right? You, we want your dog pooped in our yard or whatever it might be. So we want to go out there and respond to the neighbor. So just imagine how much more extreme that is when you're watching Americans die on national television and you're seeing the World Trade Centers. There are people who can vote right now who have no idea what the real World Trade Centers look like. Think that's just, that's mind boggling. Staggering, yeah. Right? Wild. You and I watched them fall. I watched them fall when I was inside the Air Force Academy as a cadet. People wanted action. So to, to take on that action, you can try to sell, hey, we're going to arm ourselves to the teeth and we're going to go kill everybody we see. That's a hard message to sell. It's a much easier message to sell when you're like, we're going to go over there and we're going to reform the hearts and minds of these extremist radicals who have targeted the United States unjustly and unfairly. And we're going to not engage in a war, but a special military operation. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. <laughs> and we're going to fight for hearts and minds. Did the generals on the field think they were doing hearts and minds? No. And the thing that jacked all of our soldiers up in Afghanistan is the same thing that jacked our soldiers up in Vietnam, right? They were told a line, they were given a narrative that they thought they were executing. But then on the ground, they were executing something very different. And they were not being resourced for the thing they were supposed to be doing. And they were not being given the resources to cope with the thing they were actually doing. So it just turned into this giant mess. Um, and that's why people's blood curls, cur curls, just like you said, when they hear about hearts and minds, especially when all that work for hearts and minds turned into the fiasco that happened when we left Afghanistan earlier this year. Yeah. That is not hearts and minds, especially not when the hearts and minds that we did change, we'd left behind. Well, yeah, the hearts and minds that we did change ended up splattered all over the streets as soon as we left. Yeah, that's that makes my toes curl still, man. And yeah. I've got brothers and sisters that I lost a brother in Afghanistan, a CIA a fellow CIA peer. I watched multiple uh, of my peers go over there and not come back the same way as when they left. Uh, and that's something that a lot of a lot of veterans know that feeling. And then to to know that like, what was it all for? The fact that it's a question at all. I understand there are people who can justify, and there are people who have very good answers to. We went over there, we did our mission, and it was a success. That's also a narrative, right? It's just, it's something sure. that we're telling ourselves to try to accept the fact that we didn't really do a good job in Gulf 1. We didn't really do a good job in Gulf 2. We didn't really do a good job in Vietnam. We didn't really do a good job in Afghanistan. But we seem to keep thinking that we're some stellar superpower when we're not really winning, like, in a measurable way. So we start having these ways of justifying our actions in other ways. Right. That, that, that sort of involve less quantifiable metrics. We can measure how many HVTs we pull off the battlefield. We can measure how many enemies we put down, how many enemies we kill. But is there a running tally border? Are they checking off? Our, oh, that's uh, eight more hearts today. And what is that? Six more mines? <laughs> <laughs> like, who's counting? 
Yeah. Who's counting the hearts and minds that were that were changing? Strange. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know the military right now is going through a recruitment crisis. I, I'm I'm not sure if you knew that, Jamie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the worst recruitment year since 1973, the war that the year that Vietnam and the draft ended. So we've been focused so much on hearts and minds yeah. that even our own American citizens, in their hearts and minds, they don't want to be part of the U.S. military. Yeah. Right? And what's it's amazing now is that, is that we're watching the DOD craft, yet again, another narrative that's, that's trying to you know, fit these, these Gen Z kids that are ultimately going to be the new generation of, uh, of the warrior bloodline. Yeah, exactly right. And I'm glad, I'm, I'm super happy for everybody who takes on that mantle because we need to evolve as a, as a country, as a military. Yeah. But I, it's sad to me how often I'll talk to a veteran parent. I had veteran parents. They were super proud of me going into the military. They made it clear to me that, you know, go to college or go to the military, but get your life straight in one of those two ways. Yeah. Veteran parents now are not saying that. Veteran parents now are saying, you know what, kid? I don't know that the government really is going to appreciate your life the way I appreciate your life. You might end up somewhere doing some stupid policy thing that I don't agree with and that you don't even realize you're being used as a tool. So take your time, take a gap year. Let's send you to college for a couple of years. Let's give you some ch a chance to grow up, whatever it might be. It's a whole different world now. So it really is the person who steps up to the plate to enlist or the person who steps up to the plate to volunteer for the military now is a very different breed of person than when I went through because the whole world is telling them almost not to do it and they do it anyways. That's a really dedicated, committed person. Yeah. I mean, I know that's what pushed me, you know, when I was thinking about going in, you know, I was talking to the recruiter and I think, I think my stepmom found like a note that I had written in the kitchen, like Sergeant Moylan and, and his number, my, my recruiter. And she's like, who, she thought I was, she thought it was a cop. She thought I was like, <laughs> you arrested? What, who is this? What is this? What's going on? Were you talking to the police? I'm like, no, no, no. It's, it's an army recruiter. That was even worse. What? I think she would have rather have heard, yeah, I got arrested and this guy's helping me out. <laughs> And no, the whole family, with the exception of, you know, one aunt was what, you know, told me that I was the biggest idiot in the world. And I found myself pushing back like, well, here's why it's a good idea. And, you know, them trying to talk me out of it ultimately uh, made me talk myself into it yeah. <laughs> in trying to defend the decision. But yeah. now it's, it's, oh man, you're right. It, it, I think there's equal pushback against the narrative to join, but it's, it's so different. And, and what's really interesting is, you know, you see a lot of the, the, the older veterans that were from the beginning of, of OIF, OEF, and their biggest contention is like, you know, the direction that the military is going, the, the, the woke mentality and the, 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 the acceptance and the, the overabundance of tolerance. And they're like, Oh, well, that's not even a military you want to join anymore. Like why? Cause they don't hate everyone the same. Yeah, exactly. Sounds pretty warm and cuddly to me. That, that doesn't <laughs> right? like, you're going to pay me and you're going to like, I'm going to travel the world and everybody's going to like respect me as a human being and, and care for me. And I, <laughs> and I have value as an individual. It's very different <laughs> than what I went through, but it yeah, doesn't yeah. sound unattractive. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. And you know, it's interesting. I, I wonder sometimes what I would, not just what my service would be like, but what would I be like if I went through that military? Because I know how the military shaped me. I was a total illegitimate tough guy when I went in. I thought I was, you know, the baddest dude alive. Holy hell was I wrong. That was a, <laughs> it was a rude awakening. 
you know, I thought I was the toughest kid on the block. And then I get the basic training and like, it's only basic training. And I'm like, wow, these people would just kill me. Like, yeah, "Yeah, I'm just going to shut my mouth. I had the same realization, man. Yeah. I never thought I was the toughest guy on the block, but I realized how not tough I was. I realized how much tougher other people Dude, There was so real quick story. There was this guy named Dave Mazur. And if Dave listens, that's going to be super cool. Dave Mazur is an Air Force Academy graduate. I think he went into finance at some point. But at the Academy, he was kind of a clown, like a class clown. And for those of you who don't know how the Academy works, like at the Academy, we're basically trained, which is like a beatdown session, push-ups and high knees and carrying your weapon over your head and just general advanced interrogation techniques (laughs) for like the first year for your positions. For your freshman year, you're put into all these stress positions. And I remember hating every single one of them. Like I would constantly like break down and fail and run out of strength and like be like just humiliated. But this guy, Dave Mazur, who was not in the same shape as me, he was in worse shape than me, who was already kind of a class clown. He would go someplace in his head where he wasn't present anymore. He was somewhere else. But the human being that was left behind was a man, like a machine, was an animal. There's no way that if he was in his present mind, he would be able to just keep on racking out those push-ups because the next day he would suffer from soreness and, and aches and pains and all this other stuff. And I'm like, how did you push yourself through that? It wasn't until I started hanging out with more paramilitary people at the agency that I learned all about you know how some people just have the ability to go to a happy place under extreme stress yeah. and they're cognitively dissociated with the pain in their body and which explains how buds works at all (laughs) but it it really made me jealous because those are some super tough people like they're so tough they don't even feel the pain they're like bane and bane's the only bastard who could be batman (laughs) what's funny about that is is you know i've always just been kind of like a truck through it kind of dude like all right just keep my head down lean into it just lean forward as much as possible without falling but I was always present for, for everything that sucked with one exception. And the one exception is generally accepted to be kind of a lot more tolerable than like the physical resistance training, running. Hmm. Running is I'm such a poor runner and I hate running so much that sometimes like on long distance runs, I would just black out. And wow. especially if it was like a terrain run where, where the terrain was really hellish, I would black out and just sort of be like coasting and go sort of numb and you know we'd hit these spots of elevation and i'm just maintaining pace up this this extreme elevation because i'm not even there and then you know i'd come out of it and go like holy fuck are we almost Jesus. <laughs> oh we're almost done this is great this wasn't that bad and then Man, if I'd you could go. if you could bottle that and sell that you know how many people would buy that yeah i'd buy it just to get through like you know my day-to-day <laughs> Let I me black out and come back in three minutes. I had therapy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish. I wish I could just dissociate through therapy. That'd be great. <laughs> I'd still pay the therapist. You know, being jacked, you know? How'd that happen? Yeah. Don't care. <laughs> so on this theme of the narrative that that, you know, keeps weaving in and out of this conversation, which I love. You know, I think one of the most spectacular narratives on the planet right now is is uh, over there in the Eastern Bloc between uh, mm. Ukraine and Russia. What are your thoughts there? Because, I mean, you know, the narrative that we're getting over here is that, 
you know, this, this bigger, badder aggressor is, is picking on the little kid on the block and the little kid's holding his own and, and just absolutely decimating the enemy with help from their friends across the pond. But what, what do you think about that narrative? Yeah, you know, I love, I love that you're calling it what it is, right? You're calling it a narrative. So this is such a big question, man. Just cut me off anytime you want to cut me off here. But <laughs> sure. we all need to understand, and the thing that so few of us do understand, is that we're in the middle of a giant information war. There's an information war. Every time you read an article about how Russia is kind of like Russian state television and Russian news agencies are saying these ridiculous things to the Russian people, yeah. right? We're trying to cleanse Nazis or we successfully raided whatever with 3,000 missiles, whatever it is, right? Whenever you read that stuff, we're like, how could they be lying to their people like that? <laughs> we have to understand the exact same thing is happening on our side in English, yeah. right? So the Russians are controlling their media in Russian to their base. We're controlling, our media is controlling our narrative in English to our base. And if you were to read the news in Arabic or read the news in Spanish, it would look totally different. I'm sure it would. And, and that's, that's what's so amazing about this, which makes now, today, one of the most fascinating times to be alive is that since 2016, when the world went to shit after Harambe died, we've all been on the edge of our seats waiting for the Third World War. Like we're right on the brink of the Third World War. No, we're not. We're on the brink of the First World Proxy War. Right. And that's what we need to be concerned with. Yeah, almost if you, if you were to change the world proxy war, you could call that World War III, right? The world is at war. It's just not what it's looked like in the past. If you think it's about it- It's not a land war. It's not a war of attrition. Right, World War, and every world war has been different. World War I didn't look like any conflict before it. Chemical weapons and trench warfare and everything else. World War II looked nothing like World War I. Now you had massive artillery movements and you had power projections on aircraft carriers and you had nuclear, nuclear weapons. weapons. Why would we think that World War III would look like World War II? Yeah. World War II didn't look like World War I, right? Instead, World War III is most likely to be a proxy war where global power competitors use their power to fund conflicts in third world countries and how many third world countries have we seen conflict in in the last 10 to 15 years? Like Afghanistan, right? Yemen, Syria, Libya, Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is the only one that's a little bit different because it was invaded by Russia rather than being a civil conflict in and of itself. Mm -hmm. uh, until you start to think that in many ways, prior to February 24th, Ukraine was largely associated with Russia. Yes, they were two different sovereign countries but they spoke the same language. They were based off of very similar governments. They both had- Former Soviet state. Yeah, they both had rampant corruption. There was a reason that NATO has not let Ukraine in for a very long time. So when you consider the information war that is actively happening in addition to the land war that is actively happening, and when, if you get a chance to talk to anybody who actually gets on to see combat on the ground, yeah, The war that's being fought in Ukraine is a terrifying sounding war, and it's nothing like we've seen in the past, right? I was just talking to somebody earlier this week, former U.S. soldier who did a stint in Ukraine, because I think that's crazy. Just if you're an American and you're going to Ukraine to kill Russians, that is a crazy thing to do, because if they get you, it is not going to be gentle, right? Yeah. But the way they describe it, they describe a mishmash of World War I, people are fighting in trenches, 
people are fighting in these dug in holes in the ground. And then it's like sci-fi movie because all you hear overhead are drones, hundreds of drones, not like, not like the Reapers that we had in Afghanistan where you know, they're flying at 30,000 feet. We're talking about four propeller drones, commercially available drones that are being used to target artillery pieces, used to target other drones, used for their own suicide attacks, used to drop you know, explosives on each other. So the sky is full of drones humming like bees and you don't see them, but you know they're there and you don't know if they belong to the Russian side or the Ukrainian side because they're all basically made by China or Iran or the United States or some European interlocutor, right? I mean, that's really the biggest like psychological mindfuck. I mean, the, 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 sci the psychological element to that alone must be staggering. And guess, and have you ever read that in any newspaper? No, because the newspapers are constantly telling the story of a traditional ground war because we can all imagine what a traditional ground war looks like. Sure. And then where do we get all of our footage? All of our footage is very conveniently supplied by the Ukrainian military. And of course, they're going to supply the footage that best fits them. Who puts the ugly photo on Instagram? Nobody. No. Who puts their embarrassing moments as a parent on Facebook? Nobody. So what do you think Ukraine is going to give us to put on CNN and NBC? Guys running with the javelins and laughing their asses off and playing spades and then going back to shooting and then playing spades. Yeah, so it's like it's nuts because nobody seems to question the veracity of the information that we're getting through media. If Russia was really so incompetent and Ukraine was really so skilled, this would be over, right? <laughs> the fact that Russia keeps ramping up and even the soldiers on the ground, if you read Al Jazeera, if you read the French newspaper, English version, if you read some of the news that's coming out of, uh, out of Latin America, that's in English, right? If you read some various news sources, they're actually doing interviews on the ground with soldiers in Ukraine. And the Ukrainian soldiers on the front lines are saying things like Russians are hard to kill, that they are a hard, like a hard fighting, quickly adapting threat and foe on the battlefield. And they're saying like, thank goodness they're using old weapons because if they weren't using old weapons, then if they were using modern weapons like what the West is supplying Ukraine, then the battlefield would look very different. Instead, the reason 100,000 Ukrainians have been able to hold strong in the face of, you know, whatever, 500,000 Russians is because they're not using Ukrainian weapons. They're using Western weapons that have been advanced, built, supplied, and shipped to Ukraine to help them in this conflict. It's a force multiplier for sure, but it's not truly your typical conflict. It is very much a new type of conflict. So I want to want to ask you about something you said about if Russia was really that incompetent, Ukraine was really that good, this would be over by now. So maybe you've seen it too. This this great clip of Conor McGregor and that guy, the mountain, the dude is like eight feet tall or whatever, uh, a light sparring session. Now you would think that if if the mountain really didn't know how to fight, which at the time he wasn't really training, and if Conor McGregor was really that good, which at the time he was, it should have been very quick. It should have been over, and yet. This dude's sheer size was enough to effectively manage distance against this skilled fighter. His sheer fierceness, imposing will, was enough to, you know, keep this guy from, from, from tapping him. And you look at wars like, you know, our own, our own revolutionary war. 
Mm. If the U.S., I mean, if England were re was really that incompetent, if, if the U.S. was really that good, or vice versa, you know, why didn't the war end a lot sooner in England's favor? Is it really safe to say? And I agree with you 100% that, you know, the means that we provided to Ukraine certainly shaped the way that the battle's going. But, I mean, is, is it possible that the war is simply still going on because Russia has the size to sustain itself? And I think that's exactly why. Right? There's a, yeah, there's a number of reasons why it's still happening, right? Because it's an, it is an economically beneficial war. That's the big reason why it's still happening. The ruble is stronger than it's ever been. The BRIC trading block between Brazil, Russia, India, and China is stronger than it's ever been. The United States is fixing its economy, right, based off of war funding. Like, everybody... In As the, we tend to do. Everybody's winning financially from the war because they're, and we're field testing future weapons. Why test experimental drones in Nevada when you can test them in an active military conflict in <laughs> Ukraine? Right? Oh my God. So all of that is happening. So it's an it's a economically beneficial conflict, not to mention the fact that it happened to come on the heels of one of the biggest disaster faux pas in the United States presidential history. And it was a very, very convenient time for Biden to basically go all in on supporting a war overseas and call it, in the narrative, protecting democracy. Mm -hmm. Ukraine has never, in, its war, in, in the history of free and fair elections, been called a democracy. It's been called a corrupt democratic experiment, but it's never been called a democracy. Even inside Ukraine, they say, that the invasion on February 24th was the thing that unified all the warlords together against one enemy, right? Before that, they were too busy fighting their own fiefdoms. They were too busy smuggling their own monies. Yeah. Like it was, it was kind of crazy. That's well, I think all it's just kind of what the DOD does, man. You know, we could go bring it back to Starship Troopers. We could, we could end up, you know, fighting bugs on a planet light years away, and we'd still, you know, rope democracy into the into the narrative. <laughs> but yeah, so to go back to your original point, yes, let's look at history. How did the United States win the Revolutionary War? Support from the French. Bingo. We would have been dead in the water if it was just us against Britain. And then not only that, but we got the French to stir up conflict between Britain and Spain. So our enemy had to fight on three fronts. The French, the Spanish, and the revolutionaries, where what did we have in our favor? We had tyranny of distance. Tyranny of distance means the conflict is far from home, right? right? So we had tyranny of distance in our favor because in order for Britain to fight us, they had to travel across yeah. the ocean where they didn't have to travel an ocean to get to France or to Spain. Yeah, no, we didn't have to maintain the same supply lines that they did either. Exactly right, right? So that's how we won the revolution. It wasn't like American grit alone. It was American grit plus military assistance, funding, strategic assistance. We didn't know how to wage a war. We had French generals on the field with us teaching us how to wage war, right? It was a big deal. How did the Russians win World War II? They had outdated World War I weapons, and they would no shit send two people with one gun. Yeah. First guy and dies, the first, second guy picks up. Why in the hell do we think that <laughs> Russian people dying in combat is a sign that Russia is going to stop invading? It didn't work before. Yeah. It's, it's not just even like, a deterrent to them. It's, it's infuriating to them. It's just like your example with the mountain, right? Like, 
the guy is so big and so ferocious. That's what you just said, right? His his ferocity made it so that the more hits he took, the more angry he got. Does that mean Russia's going to win? Like, arguably, Russia's already winning because they still control 20% of a foreign country. Like, did they lose ground? Yes, they lost ground they had already gained in a foreign country. And I'm not the only one saying this, right? It's it's fascinating to me how the narrative wants to turn this into like some kind of Ukrainian victory. It's still an active war zone. The world is like the Ukrainians are 50% of their electrical supply is is gone. It's lost. They're going through rotating blackouts on going into winter. They're afraid of dirty bombs and they're afraid of of nuclear weapons and they're there's another mobilization. The counteroffensive that was so successful in the north didn't gain much ground at all in the south where the strategic objectives were. Mm. And now you're seeing this huge buildup for the battle in Kherson and that military buildup from the time the counterattack was launched on August 29th, the field has not changed much since then. And the Russians have just entrenched themselves, doubled their numbers, increased their artillery movements. Right. So all of the narrative that was told to us about supply chains being damaged in the north and, oh, look how powerful Ukraine is taking back territory in the north. The north was never the strategic objective. The strategic objective has always been to cut off the Black Sea. Hmm. Russia is still to this day executing conflict exactly like they teach Americans in the U.S. War College. Cut (laughs) off the strategic supply line and you will starve the enemy right? They're cutting off electricity. They're yeah. still trying to close the land, the land bridge, right? And they're doing a respectable job considering the fact that they are underfunded compared to Ukraine with no foreign support of direct military assistance. It's, it is a powerful thing when you look at the truth. It's not me being a Russian sympathizer. It's me being objective and looking at the facts instead of just the headlines that come out from CNN or MSNBC or you know, BBC. So the same way that we're sitting here sort of, you know, trying to predict the outcome, I mean, the rest of the world is doing the same because, uh, you know, I, like, like, like we've said before, in, in a proxy war, everyone's affected. It's not like a land war where you can sit back and watch and go, oh, nope, I'm staying out of this one, guys. Like, OK, whatever, wherever the dust settles, that's that's fine. You know, we pick up and we, we rebuild. And like I said, the rest of the world is trying to do the same. And right now we've got, you know, Iran sort of to sort of, you know, siding with Russia. We've got Saudi Arabia that's kind of pulling back from the U.S. Where are the Saudis going to go? Like, where are they going to align themselves? And what, what does that look like for the rest of the Middle East? Because that's a that's an important part of the world. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The uh, So I would actually push back and say that the world is not having the kind of conversation we're having right now. If you just look, we're getting ready for midterm elections in the United States. If you look at the top three issues going into the midterms, what's happening in Europe is nowhere on that list. People are worried about inflation. People are worried about jobs and the economy. Yes, people are. But I'm talking about states. Uh, um, state actors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, no, people People are talking about what the fucking Kardashians are doing. Correct. <laughs> I'm not worried about the people's opinion. That that doesn't confront me much. <laughs> How very democratic of you. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> Touche, salesman. Um, but it's true. No, you're exactly right. What you're saying is exactly right. And that is how states think. States don't think about people. States think about bases. Yeah. Right. Not military bases, but bases of popularity. Yeah. So 
the, the left is pandering to their base, the right is pandering to their base, and the majority of people who are left in the middle, nobody's pandering to them because they know it doesn't, they don't need the majority. They just need a passionate base to get what they want. That's why you only ever, at most, we've seen 66% of voters vote. Yeah. That's not, yeah. that's not a lot of people. <laughs> that's, no, they, don't, they don't care for the silent majority. They care for the screaming mob. Exactly right. Yeah. So as states watch what's happening, states are interested, again, from an economic point of view. Yeah. What states are really watching is the markets. I can't tell you how many clients I have. I, my business serves ultra wealthy clients and we serve investment clients who are trying to use predictive analysis to stay ahead of their competitors, right? That's a, a big part of my business is informing, advising, and speaking to these groups, which is why I also don't really care about all the Twitter haters out there who want to shit talk me. And I don't really care that much about the YouTube comments out there who want to tell me that I'm a communist and who knows what else. <laughs> Unless you're paying my company, I really don't care what your opinion is of me. So as, as, I, as I work with my clients, they're very much interested in what is the market going to do? Who cares really how the conflict bears out? What's going to happen in the market, right? As threats of nuclear war escalate, as North Korea keeps going crazy, what's that going to do to the market? Right. With the next, if if Harrison falls to the Ukrainians or if Harrison is defended by the Russians, how's that going to affect the market? What's going to happen when the House flips red or the Senate stays or flips blue? What's going to happen to the market? Because everybody's in it to earn money. That's money is what makes the war continue. And the war is there because it creates money. So that's that's the true relationship of it all. So that's what people are worried about. What are the Saudis thinking? The Saudis are thinking, where's the money going to go? And the Saudis are essentially the Sunni leadership of the Middle East. Their biggest concern isn't Russia or the United States or China. It's Iran, the Shia holder of the majority, right? So it's a Shia-Sunni conflict in the Middle East at all times. The Shia are trying to increase their reach. The Sunnis are trying to protect against Shia reach. But then the Sunnis have their own versions of extremism that they're also trying to combat. So it's kind of a mess. So when you start talking about American allies like the Emirates and Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and Oman, these oil rich countries that supply oil to the United States, they're not really loyal to the United States. They're loyal to defending their own priorities. Right. Yeah. And if the United States is buying at a premium price, then that's how they support their own priorities. Sure. It was fascinating to me when Secretary of State Blinken recently stated the top three strategic threats to the United States. Did you happen to see what those top three strategic threats were? No. What were they? Russia, China, and Saudi Arabia. The top three strategic threats to the United States, the Secretary of State publicly announces that an ally is a strategic threat to the United States. Yeah, that's surprising. Especially when, yeah. you know, the State Department is so big on, you know, we don't have enemies, just future allies. It's, it's amazing that they would take that, 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 that stance towards an ally. That's yeah. not very diplomatic of them. Exactly right. And if you think about it, it's, it's all very, it's narrative focused. Because if you recall, Biden ran on a campaign platform saying he was going to bring Saudi Arabia to justice, right? That he was going to make it so that the killing in the streets and the subjugation of women and, the, and all of the extreme violence that they support there as part of their national identity was not conducive to a free and democratic United States. So he wanted to separate and further himself from Saudi Arabia. But we're okay being one of, if not their biggest clients. 
especially when Russian oil starts to dry up. Uh, and, and who do we ask for help from? Hey, hey, Khaliji Arabs. Hey, Saudis. Hey, Emiratis. You know, it'd be really great if you increased your oil supply to the world because the world decided to sanction Russia and we don't have that oil anymore. So we need your help. <laughs> <laughs> and they obliged, didn't they? They did. Absolutely. They did for a while. And now they increase their prices and reduce their uh, production, which any business in their right mind would do. Do you know what Starbucks will do if everybody starts demanding coffee? They're going to increase their prices and reduce their supply. So it's law, like laws of economics. So as soon as Saudi Arabia and OPEC starts to do what the law of economics dictate they should do, then we start painting a narrative about how they're an enemy and they're not they're not playing the global political game and they're not a fair they're not they're not supporting the growth of democracy they're not a democracy yeah right? they're a, a kingdom right it's a there's a crown prince this is not the people don't get to raise their hand and vote for leadership why do we we're on this weird democratic this this weird kick of trying to outsource democracy to countries that just don't want it yeah it'll function perfectly fine without it it just makes us angry that people aren't doing it our way. It's the traditional parent-child relationship of, of, for all time, right? <laughs> well, it's it's just like, you know, if we were to find a, a, an oil reserve in international waters off the coast of Greece, we'd say that we need to bring democracy to the lost city of Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that justify us dr drilling for the resources we need. It's a wild, uh, wild web of narratives that we're trying to navigate our way through, isn't it? So I was recently, and you know, it's funny, it, I find the word narrative kind of gets a negative connotation. And I wouldn't, I would not say that it's, it's unearned because narrative has become a very commonplace term. If you originally, narrative was always something to be avoided. Truth and fact were what you wanted to, what you wanted to kind of espouse. But then at some point, narrative became such a common use term that we all started realizing that all messaging is essentially a narrative. Yeah. And then with the birth of the 24 hour news cycle, it became even worse. Yeah. I was recently at an offsite where I was, uh, I was training congr congressional aides, uh, staffers that actually work for Congress people. Okay. If you can believe this, I was called in to support a training group whose job is just to encourage bipartisan cooperation between congressional aides, congressional staffers. Right. Wow. Okay. I didn't. I didn't think you was going to be at that level. That's interesting. Yeah. Because the divide, division of of Senate and of the House is so significant that not only are Congress people not talking to each other, but the staffers that work for them are also not talking to each other. So, like, we're so heavily polarized that we basically have two tent cities in Washington D.C. <laughs> and very rarely does anybody cross the cross the center line to bring water to one another. Right. So now the government is funding. <laughs> the government and private sector are actually funding projects to increase bipartisanship at these incredibly low levels. So I was called in to help them to help be part of this project, right? And my skin turned white. The blood left my face when I started listening to these staffers talk about their experience. Yeah. Because what they kept saying was how they have to control a narrative, right? Well, my, my congressperson needs to control this narrative for the farmers of Iowa. Well, my staffer needs to control this narrative for the working class in New York. Oh, well, my congressman needs to control. Everybody's trying to control a narrative. And then it's being ex, like outsourced to the staffers themselves to write and control the narrative. So 
when you have government people literally sitting in a room and the word narrative is being thrown around like it's a common use term, that's yeah. a, it was a huge sign to me. I was like, we are way off target. Nobody here is just speaking facts or truth to power. Everybody is so concerned about how will we message this decision to our voting base? I'm sorry that I don't often bring good news, dude. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. I didn't expect a lot of, you know, positive, happy, chipper shit from a, from a former CIA guy. If you want positive, happy stuff, you can go join the woke army, right? <laughs> I don't know. I might be a little too old and a little too crusty. Maybe somebody will pat your hair while you go to sleep at night instead of just uh, forcing you to sleep on a hard helmet. Right? Maybe, maybe a little, little bit of back rubs. I get to pick, the, <laughs> I get to pick my MRE. You know, that grab and go shit. Like I want to dig for Chili Mac, I can dig for Chili Mac. That's awesome. Somebody's going to, somebody will warm up your MRE for you, let alone, <laughs> let alone have the kit that never actually works. I always had the kit where it was like, it was a month away from expiring with a 15 year shelf life. And the heater never worked. I was like, wow. why do I even have this thing? It's just a waste of water and whatever the chemical is that makes it heat up anyways. I mean, I got to say, honestly, lucky you, because most of the MREs I got were like five or six years past expiration. <laughs> so, I, I mean, you know, hey, that's, that's, uh, that's the Navy for you. Or that's the uh, Air Force for you. I got treated. I got treated real. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> My peanut butter was still smooth. Oh, oh that peanut butter lasts forever. I I was on the set of um, of A Grunt's Life season two. I co-wrote, co-directed that. And uh, we had a bunch of, you know, we were using MREs in, in a lot of the scenes and they were getting ripped up and rat fucked and walking walking across set. I find a thing, a jalapeno cheese spread in the dirt. I'm like, oh, shit's like gold. Dusted it off. It's like, yeah, it expired a few years ago. Fuck it. It's like eating it like it's a, like it's a snack. <laughs> walking around set. We'd see he's sucking down cheese spread. <laughs> 3,000 calories. You don't need to eat for like two days. Yeah. I also probably won't poop for four. So <laughs> <laughs> that's not convenient for a warfighter. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when you're spending, you know, 14 hour days in the desert, like, yeah, okay. I'm not that mad. I could wait till the weekend. I go back to the hotel and, you know, do my business there. <laughs> that's true. It's like, that's hard. Dehydration and heat and like you're carrying all your gear. Man, the guys that were up on the wall. Those, those were the folks that really had it rough. Eight, 12-hour shifts, walking wow. around, just waiting, waiting for bad shit to happen. Meanwhile, like the rest of us are living in tin cans, but we're not up on a wall, right? Listening to, listening to artillery get like launched in randomly. You know what? I remember those guys up on the wall. I, yeah, they, they, they had some long shifts. But I also remember, you know, spending... 14, 15, 16 hours on my feet with, you know, 70 pounds on my back and sweating under the sun. Still wouldn't trade places with them. <laughs> <laughs> Getting shot at, a couple TBIs from some explosions. Still wouldn't trade places with them. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> TBIs. That's like that's the thing that defines our generation is TBIs, man. Is that not, like, psychotic? Like, us and the it's NFL, nuts. who else has that in common? Yeah. And it's fascinating because, like, you'll you'll talk to a veteran – and before you know that traumatic brain injuries even exist, you'll talk to somebody and you'll just think that they're kind of slow. You'll be like, this person just, how was this person a captain in the army, right? Because you'll think that they're kind of slow. And then eventually you'll see one of the telltale ticks of like a TBI. And then you're like, oh shit, they were a fully cognitively capable person before they did their tour in Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever else, right? And now- yeah. 
they've been through one too many IEDs or one too many Humvees have rolled over and now they're, they're just, they're hurt for the rest of their life. And everybody who meets them is thinking that they're a little slow and doesn't realize that it's a TBI. Yeah. And the, you know, the crazy thing about TBIs, it's that it's, it's like autism or, or sociopathy. It's, it's a spectrum. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. there are a few telltale signs, but when I first got diagnosed and referred to the TBI center on, uh, on Benning, I was doing really okay for a while. Uh, and then in, in about a week span, I threw a chair at my platoon sergeant. I threw a mm. chair at an IHOP waiter, which I'm really embarrassed about. And I attacked one of my soldiers with a CBC helmet. And, you know, they, they sent me home and was like, all right, Goldie, just go the fuck home, calm down, take a day and come back to work. I go home and I'm like settling in. I'm still in uniform. And I, I, I remember I had a piece of trash that I intended to throw out and I intended to, you know, take a piss in whatever order I intended to do so. And I, I think I, I went into the bathroom, I threw the trash into the toilet and then went into the laundry room and started pissing into the trash can. And I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew something was wrong. I knew I was doing something, something wasn't right. And once it finally clicked in my head, I'm like, oh shit, I think I might need help. <laughs> and, and yeah, that was, that's how it presented with me. It was, I wasn't like, you know, it was yeah, just yeah, yeah. smiling outbursts and extreme memory loss and cross wires that got me doing silly shit, like putting milk in the, up in the cabinet and you know the that's the majority yeah that's the majority of what i see i mean i'm sure there are some extreme cases like you said on the spectrum sure. but the vast majority of tbis that i see are exactly what you said right people who just they stammer a little bit too much sometimes and mm -hmm. they they have wires crossed they'll, they'll forget something you told them just a few seconds ago yeah. they'll repeat the same story it's it's almost like talking to somebody who's in their 80s sometimes like <laughs> yeah they, they say the same story the same way and there's only been five minutes difference and, and you're sitting there kind of awkwardly thinking to yourself, did they not remember telling me the story? It's like that. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I appreciate your service, man. I appreciate the sacrifice that you made. And, and I have seen so many just awesome veterans. I'm still friends with many veterans. I work with a lot of veterans in my business now who are TBI like survivors and they have their coping mechanisms and they, and they never complain, right? Like they'll, they'll talk about it, but they don't ever like feel like they are entitled to some sort of something because yeah. of their injury. It's, it's amazing what a good coping mechanism can do. And what's so strange is like, for me, I feel like I've identified it over the last couple of years is like watching the same TV shows from like start to finish over and over. like I can I can rewatch you know uh, uh, King of the Hill or Futurama <laughs> or just anything that I grew up watching I can yeah. go back and watch it from start to finish and if I just include one or two episodes in my day there's this familiarity there's this comfort there's pre this predictability that just makes me feel safe and mm. insulated and contained and I can't explain how it works but I'm certain it does. Oh yeah, it, it absolutely works. What what you're talking about is a is a tool that's often used for trauma victims. So I, it's one of those things that I'll bet no. What was that? This Futurama was created by was that the Seth? Mac Moaning? It was the yeah, uh, yeah, same guy who did The Simpsons. So I guarantee you that when they created The Simpsons, when they created Futurama, the last thing they ever thought it would be used for is a future tool for trauma relief and trauma processing among oh, yeah. veterans, right? I met, a, I met a woman recently who was human trafficked, 
an American girl who was human trafficked. Yeah, it's a, it's a major problem in the United States that very few people talk about. But human trafficking of Americans inside the United States, specifically American girls, is a major problem. And I met a victim of human trafficking who had been rescued, but she had all this trauma, right? Because from the age of like 12 to 23 or whatever, she was a sex slave to Americans in the United States as an American citizen. And her tool for coping with her trauma and being a high-functioning 30-year-old now was the show Friends. Uh And she describes watching Friends over and over again the same way that you just described watching Futurama. You're kidding me. The pattern, the process, it's safe, it's secure. Her friends are the people in the show. So she goes there, and that's not just like her coping mechanism when she feels stressed. It's like the thing that she just turns on in the background to feel safe at home. Yeah, I like I can put it on and take a nap on my couch and like know I'm going to wake up okay. Yes. Yeah. Holy shit. Wow. Yeah. You're not alone there, man. There's a lot of really good science to it. There's a lot of uh, the, the, the human brain is a powerful tool. And it's easy to make fun of sitcoms when you're, you know, 25. But then yeah. when you're 45 and you see they have value, all of a sudden you're like, you know, thank you for making this you know, Fox, Fox, what was the, the Fox station called that used to make that stuff? Oh, um, Fox. I thought it was just Fox. Century Fox or something. Fox. Oh, Century, Century Fox. There it is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, love, I loved how the logo at the, I think at the beginning or end of Futurama, it always said 30th Century Fox. <laughs> <laughs> just one of those brilliant little Easter eggs that they throw in there. <laughs> that only a true Futurama fan would, would recognize. Yeah. Or remember yeah. for this matter. Yep. <laughs> amazing. Well, hell man, Andy, it has been amazing talking to you. This is this has been incredible. I appreciate it, man. It's been a it's been a total blast. And thank you for kind of a like a fresh, relaxed conversation. A lot of times I find myself going through podcasts and they're very intense and they're very, you know, very serious. So Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's not our not exactly our style here. I think I put on a, a, a yeah, we're a Maybe something a little bit more professional when we had uh, John Douglas on, but I knew this was going to be cool. So <laughs> you seem like a cool guy. <laughs> I'll go with it. I'll go with it. At yeah. least uh, it's it's better to be assumed that you're the cool guy than like the weird guy or the the nerdy guy or whatever else. You just have to own it. So yeah. I was yeah. never cool in my life. So I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah. But sometimes I I get mistaken as being cool now. Oh, nice. Yeah, I don't I don't think I've ever you know enjoyed my reputation preceding me. <laughs> maybe one day we'll we'll see what that reputation turns out to be i don't know <laughs> yeah absolutely but, but yeah man yeah, so I, mean, I, mean, I didn't know what to expect going into this but i certainly didn't expect you to you know hit me in the feels with uh with your boot at the end there the futurama and friends and all that shit wow it's powerful man like this is the reason that i love life the reason i love what i do the reason that i love being a business owner and the reason i love not being inside the cia anymore is because I get to take what CIA taught me and I get to just live with those skills in, in the everyday world. Yeah. And it's so, it's so powerful to see everything from like mirroring techniques to elicitation techniques to mental optimization techniques, memory improvement techniques to use those to remember like charming moments with your children. Yeah. I have, so CIA taught me a, a tool or a, a memory tool to basically be able to recall a, a specific memory, a specific place in time, okay. essentially for the rest of your life, right? It's a permanent memory hook. When my son was two years old, we bought him this 
this little Batman mask that came in his underwear set. I don't know if you have any kids, but if you've got little kids, you know, the superhero underwear that comes in like a five pack. I've got a 12 year old daughter who's obsessed with the Marvel universe. So yes. So when my little boy was two, he was obsessed with Batman and Superman DC universe. So we got him this, this little target set that came with five pairs of underwear and a Batman mask, a little like plastic Batman mask. Yeah. He was too young to know how to put it on the right way. So he would always put it on upside down. <laughs> and it was, it was this charming thing that my wife and I knew wasn't going to last forever. Eventually, he would learn how to put the Batman mask on the right way, and then he would be wearing a proper Batman mask for the rest of his life. But for a while, he would turn it upside down, and he would look like this weird monster with fangs. And fangs, stuff. yeah. Bat ears. So he would run around, and he would do that in his underwear. And I was like, you know what? I could take a picture of this and like save it to my photo album. Or I could use that hook technique that the agency taught me. So now I have this permanent memory of my son standing on the hardwood floor in our house in front of our old piano that we bought used. And he's wearing his Superman blue underwear with red, red bands. And he's got his little two-year-old pot belly and his upside down Batman mask. And I have that forever. And I have CIA to thank for the ability to choose to make that a memory where so many of us end up just having the memories that happen instead yeah. of the memories that we choose being privileged enough to teach those to people now through my business has just been immensely powerful and it's so much better than living undercover working undercover and collecting secrets for a government that i may or may not agree with all the time <laughs> i love it i you know i i don't want to be that guy that like you know ask for something for free but can you can you take us through like this this hook technique before we sign off on like how does that work yeah yeah absolutely man that's one of the reasons i brought it up was because i was i was hoping we'd have time to kind of go through it right oh yeah i'd love to so when you go to make a the way your memory works your memory has it it defaults to short-term memory okay and short-term memory generally lasts between three and seven seconds on the heels of short-term memory you have another round of short-term memory which is another three to seven seconds so if you've ever forgotten somebody's name as soon as you meet them, it's because after you go through, you hear their name. Hey, my name's Devin. Oh, hey, Devin, right? You'll remember Devin's name for somewhere between three and seven seconds. But then that it, it's like a cachet that's going to get reset for the next seven seconds. So the way that you remember Devin's name is you basically find a reason to remember his name and say it out loud within the seven second window right? If you can say it out loud, it's going to last even longer. If you just say it in your own head, if you look at him and think his name is Devin and then within seven seconds, his name is Devin. Don't forget. And, and it's, uh, hey, Devin, my name's Jamie. Good to meet you, Devin. Like, is that good enough or? That's, that's even better because okay. when you verbalize it, you're bringing muscle memory and layering that on top of cognitive memory. Okay. Right. So the way that you use a hook technique is you first recognize that you've got three short-term memory cycles before your long-term memory prioritizes the most important thing from those previous three cycles. So you've got to remember Devin's name for the first seven seconds, repeat it within the next seven seconds, repeat it again within the next seven seconds. And then your brain is like, oh, you know what? That's a priority memory from short-term memory. So I'm going to put that in long-term memory. Okay. Now you're going to remember Devin's name for somewhere between 12 and 72 hours. So now you can just have to remember Devin about once a day for the next three days or so. And then your brain is going to be able to prioritize that in its long-term codex. Once it's in its long-term codex, you might remember Devin's name and not even remember Devin's face. <laughs> but you'll never lose Devin's name. 
and could that 12 to 72 hour window, could that be as something as simple as something is just like, hey, I'm going to shoot Devin and Ted. Devin, it was great meeting you the other day. Yeah, it could be something as, as simple as that or telling somebody a story about how you met this guy named Devin, right? <laughs> Again, if you verbalize it, it happens even faster because you're mixing physical and cognitive memory centers. It's why like you can type your name on a computer with muscle memory. You're not remembering where the keys are. You're not remembering where it goes. It's just muscle memory. It's the same kind of process. So when there's a memory that you're having that you want to remember, right? Whether it's with your kids or with your spouse, or if you're just having a really good day, I have this, I accidentally did something very similar when I was at the Academy. I was, I was a sophomore at the Air Force Academy and I was having a horrible bowel movement that hurt and it was miserable. Right. <laughs> so I'm sitting there in the stall and I'm like doubled over because it hurts so much. Yeah. And I found myself looking down and to the right at where the foot of the stall was drilled into the tile floor. And I was on that toilet for so long that I kept referencing that point again and again over the like 30 minutes that I was in the bathroom. <laughs> okay. And then it was such a traumatic feeling that I remembered, I kept thinking about like, oh, I don't know if I should eat again because my stomach might still be, I might still have something. So for the next like three days, I was accidentally remembering this moment of looking down to the right and seeing the stall foot and the tile. So now here I am 42 years old and I can still recall with perfect clarity <laughs> the, the crisscross tile and the, the gunk that was around the tile and the two bolts that were in the cement and the, in the tile flooring and the weird like sea foam green leg that went into the stall i don't want to remember it but like it just accidentally worked that way most yeah. of us have memories that we can recall like that why do i remember this thing well because you yeah. accidentally you accidentally, you accidentally permanently. yes so <laughs> so when you want to hook something on purpose you you have the memory whatever happens happens and then immediately you're like i want to remember this so then you you, you force yourself to visualize it again within the next seven seconds. And then you visualize it again within the next seven seconds. And then you visualize it again about a minute, minute and a half, 15 minutes after that. Wow. And then you just make it, you can set a timer or you can put it on your watch or your phone, or you can just make a, a discipline out of it. You tell other people about the memory. Just like I'm telling you about what I saw on the toilet or what I saw with my son. Every time we verbalize it, it comes back to our prefrontal cortex. Wow. And then all of a sudden it's like whitewash. It's refreshed again. Wow. So. It, it's it's sad for anybody who can't remember their wedding day or can't remember their first kiss with their wife or it's kind of a hazy memory right it's i'm i'm sorry that i can't help you but for everybody who's getting ready to have that first kiss or getting ready to put their ring on their spouse's finger or getting ready to propose if you want to remember that forever all you have to do is use that hook technique right yeah. within within about two hours you'll have that memory locked in with high probability permanently for the rest of your life and maybe try not to get blackout drunk at your wedding. That's that would help. That would definitely help. If you <laughs> no, do, at least write down the thing you're supposed to remember before you get blackout. And hope it makes sense to you in the morning when you read your drunk handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes drunk you doesn't communicate so well with sober you. Yeah, right. I would hope that everybody has better things to do on their wedding night than get blackout, but I'm just assuming. Oh, I've I've seen things though. <laughs> We've all seen things, man. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, thank you again. This has been amazing. This is really fun. I'd love to have you on again. I hope to get you in the studio one day if you're ever in the uh, the greater DC area. 
be a lot Absolutely, of fun. man. Yeah, I would have loved to have been there this time too. I'm just, my travel schedule is, it's a madhouse right now, man. Got I'm in you. Miami, I've got to be in London. And then after that, I'm headed back to Colorado. Like it's just the time that I get with my family is so infrequent that it's really hard to to take that time away from them to book another two-day trip or another one-day trip. So yeah, I'll, I'll let the, the craziness will end and I'll make my way to Fredericksburg, brother. There you go. There you go. Or you can take the family to see the nation's capital and bam, two birds, one stone. Even better. I'm, my son has a thing right now. He wants to see Williamsburg because he wants to see where we won the, the American Revolution. So Okay, cool. It's yeah. a pretty cool interest for a kid to have. Absolutely. How do you say no to that, right? You're like, yeah, let's go. Okay, yeah, pack the car. Let's do this. I'm on I know they have, yeah okay and they they in like the the williamsburg peanut shop is like one of the best in the the best in the country so wow let's go get some honey roasted peanuts and let's laugh at the british right. who doesn't <laughs> want to do that who doesn't want to do that basically every wednesday every afternoon sunday afternoon <laughs> <laughs> make sure you core hook those memories <laughs> <laughs> amen to that brother oh man all right well, again, man, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. Appreciate you being here. My pleasure, dude. We'll talk about it later on. All right. Sounds good. Be well. See ya.